Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back again to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function, where we try and talk about complex topics and deep take a deep dive into subjects that uh, help us kind of unfold the mysteries of living successful, meaningful lives. Also, we really try to find ways to become uh, independent, self-sufficient, and have some sort of agency over our lives. So you know, I have said this before, but what is the mission of this podcast? The main mission is to explain what executive function is and why it is so critical for us to talk about executive function. And those who are not in the field or not really concerned with, um, you know, psychology, you know, education or cognitive neuroscience, executive function term tends to uh, feel very um, odd and different. Uh, But mainly it refers to the executive nature of the prefrontal cortex, uh, which acts more like a CEO, which is in charge of the running uh, running of the whole company. So which means managing the managers, managing systems, deve- devising a plan, having a foresight to look beyond the current moment. And we need some tools and strategies uh, to understand how to connect to that future self. Those who are in charge of children and raising or educating, we know that children, the prefrontal cortex is yet to develop. Uh, and those who are trying to lead successful lives, running companies or or leading teams, uh, executive function is very critical because lifelong success is very integrated with strong executive function. Uh, take example of um, managing teams. What does that mean? You know, having good understanding of interpersonal relationship, reading between the lines, taking perspective, showing empathy, but also moving uh, the the team along or moving the collective uh, goals forward. So as we think about all these issues, one thing that I've been thinking about, particularly uh, as uh, I welcome you, uh, I introduce uh, our current guest, that our uh, 21st century life has gotten complicated for a good reason, because we as a culture and society are beginning to acknowledge the individual differences and collective differences and similarities, and particularly the gap between the two needs to be reconciled. And and this uh, can be called as, you know, uh, conversations about race, equity, diversity, inclusion, but mostly it requires having us to show some sort of bravery, courage, and emotional agility to get in those spaces. And uh, with that in mind, today's guest is going to really help us um, give those tools and, and insights so that we can get into those brave spaces with her. And uh, we are also going to figure out why these conversations really matter. So with great pleasure, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Didi Wolfarth. Uh, she earned her bachelor's degree from uh, Earlham College, master's degree from Ball State University, and 
a doctorate degree in clinical psychology from Spalding University, where she is currently a full-time professor, which is in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, she's also a clinical psychologist in Indiana and Kentucky. Takes me back because I did my first clinical fellowship was in the tri-state area. Uh, Ohio is the only place that is excluded from her daily experience of practice. Um, and she specializes in treating children and families who are affected by intergenerational poverty, abuse, neglect, and trauma. Uh, she has her focus um, of her work and her mission is on cultural humility. Uh, and that has intensified over the last decade, as she describes it, that she saw the many ways racism, sexism, heterosexism uh, were traumatizing for people. Um, she has since published sev several articles on diversity, trauma, and cultural humility, and she presents regularly on the topic. I don't know if she's going to talk about this, but she has a YouTube channel, which is absolutely darling, and I'm encouraging her to get back on it because <laughs> it is um, a, a very intelligent ramblings as well as a clever ways of roping students into thinking, reflecting, and also connecting at a human level. So welcome, Didi. How are you today? Sushita, that is so kind. Thank you very much. I'm doing so well. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. Yes. And I forgot to mention, you also are, are a co-author um, of, of Case Studies in Child and Adolescent Psych Psychopathology, which uh, just published a second edition, I think. Um, yeah. So with that said, let's dive into first uh, general questions uh, about your interest. Um, I know, uh, you know, when we talk about executive function, we know uh, that trauma and uh, poverty have significant impact on the development of the brain and particularly the prefrontal system, causing all kinds of chaos and leading to behaviors or delays that can present itself as academic delays, intellectual delays, and behavioral mismanagement. So can you talk, us a, talk to us a little bit about um, this role of intergenerational poverty and that plays on uh, those we serve who come from those areas of America. Absolutely. So trauma is really, really common. And up to, the, the, the data shows about 50, 60% of people, just everyday people have experienced a significant trauma before they're 18. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people that it's affecting. And the earlier that trauma or difficulty starts, the, the, the more the impact, right? And you, you know this as a neuropsychologist, right? A ne you know, neurologist, because the, the neurons that are fired together wire together, yes. right? So, so the more that these, these pathways are laid down, the more that that affects us later on. So we're talking about things that in this regard that people don't often talk about, things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, parental death or par parental incarceration, parental divorce, a parent mental illness, poverty, racism, sexism, heterosexism. Um, I know I'm forgetting some of the horrible things that can happen to people, but when we experience those things, even at a young age, and not to get us too far in the weeds here, but at 30 months old, if you look at infants, two and a half year old kid, okay, it, a child who's been abused, their brain is already functioning different than a kid who's not been abused. If you show, for example, that little, that little two and a half year old faces of someone who's happy or sad or afraid, the little kids who've been abused can't identify what's happy and what's sad and what's afraid as easy as the kids 
who've not been abused. And the little kid, even at two and a half years, they can't put the words to say, that's a happy, that's a sad. They don't have the feeling vocabulary. That's got big implications later on, right? Because if we're, we're lacking those fundamental skills in terms of our brain development, that can impact us as, as adolescents and as adults and later on. That said, and I'll shut up here, that our, our history is not our destiny. And I think that's mm. a big point of your whole podcast, right? That just because we, we have been through horrible, terrible things doesn't mean that our life has to be a horrible, terrible tragedy, right? At any time, we have the power to say, this is not how the story ends. And I, I'm going to be above how I was raised, or I'm going I'm to do better than, than what I've been through. Well, I think it's now when you <laughs> break it down uh, so specifically, it is kind of heart wrenching to hear. But as you mentioned, uh, this kind of trauma, um, I to me, it's also scratching the surface. Uh, trauma is always associated with shame, and and you know it's uh, less often blame, but more often shame. So there may be some underreporting there. And secondly, I think. Trauma can be culture, like the way you are raised could be a family culture. There was a great story of the uh, vaudeville artist um, whose biography recently got published. And this was a story of a family who uh, performed, traveling uh, performers, a performing troupe. And this was turn of the uh, 20th century. And, and in that vaudeville act, the child would be picked up and thrown off the stage into the orchestra pit or off the stage. That was their act. And so this child, uh, you know, this man, young man became the first uh, very important uh, character, and I'm forgetting his name, of course, but uh, in, in the silent movie era in America. And as this author wrote about his, uh, <laughs> his biography, uh, it was so interesting to hear what was considered the normal phenomenon of everyday experience for him is now we will be shocked <laughs> throwing. And eventually the performance act continued in his teens. So eventually the mom, he became so heavy to lift for the father. So she sewed a handle in his shirt so the father could pick him up to throw him off the stage and, and he would get bro broken, I mean, you know, broken bones and bruises. So anyways, uh, can you comment a little bit about your thoughts about um, when we talk about this trauma, this the, the range of ways one can experience hurt and humiliation, uh, what can that do in terms of the behaviors? And what does it show up uh, as these children show up in the classrooms or as these children show up on the playground? And then these adults show up or adolescents show up in the malls, you know, <laughs> or these adults show up for job interviews. Um, can you comment that, on that a little bit? Yeah. So, so what we think of as trauma is we usually think of like a hurricane or a fire or a, uh, forest fires or terrible things like that. But what the more common kind of trauma is ongoing interpersonal hmm. trauma. It's much more common to have ongoing physical abuse or sexual abuse or those, those kind of things. And I, I want to say a little bit, if I could, about um, a lot of people blame like, oh, they'll say, oh, it's priests or Boy Scout leaders or foster parents or whatever. Most priests are good people. Most Boy Scout leaders are good people. Most foster parents are good people. Most abuse happens in the home. Most abuse happens by biological parents, right? Wow. So, so sometimes we get um, off focus as a society when we start thinking about, oh, we got to protect 
stranger danger. Mm. We got to protect. There's a child perpetrator moving in from down the street. This is terrible. That's a wrong idea. Most of the abuse is happening in the home, right? And so what, what happens though is if we know that most of the trauma is this ongoing abuse, it really gets to that shame you talk about, right? If, if I'm in a car accident and I tell you, I was in a car accident yesterday, you would say, oh, that's terrible. What happened? And we could talk about it. And even if you hadn't been in a car accident, you would understand me, right? And you would say, oh, you lost all your belongings in a tornado. That's terrible. And we would talk about it. Mm. If I've been sexually abused or physically abused, I don't get a chance to talk to anybody about it, right? I don't get to organize it in my brain. I don't get to make a coherent narrative. I don't get to have a story that goes with it that can help me understand it, right? In that regards, it's a little bit like experiences, people's of color experiences of racism, right? That you're like, this happened every day and every day, and I don't get to talk about it sometimes. And what happens is we don't get to form that coherent narrative that makes sense, that story of what happened. And what also happens is we feel shame and we feel alone and we feel like I'm the only one that this happened to. And then that's a, a, a hard place to be because then that sense of shame prevents us from making sense of it, right? And so we have the stigma of mental health. We have this feeling of shame. We have this difficulty putting together a coherent story of your life that all go in together that make it really tough. You know, that is such a important thing. And I'm glad to see in the spaces, particularly in education, K-12 education, I'm hearing this language of uh, really f- shifting focus on from developing skills in academic area, but also developing the child's sense of agency and child's sense of identity. And for that, so much understanding has to go into that our children are coming from, as you mentioned, from uh, those traumatic experiences or experiences of violation of trust from people who are supposed to offer uh, comfort and care or love. Um, Can I explore this with you that uh, when when you think about... uh, uh, then trauma. And then there's, to me, in this country, we also are experiencing trauma related to the 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 racial tension that we all are uh, experiencing or enduring. So can we shift? Um, uh, you have done a lot of work uh, in the area of cultural humili- humility uh, and, and this uh, acknowledgement, understanding, and then in, uh, embodying that in your presence within the, the spaces where diversity houses. But there is definitely structural racism has far greater impact on particular group or, or minorities uh, much more than the dominant white uh, groups. So um, maybe we can explore that a little bit more from your lens. I would love to talk about that. And I have to say, I'm a white person, so I'm privileged in this space, right? So I always have to say, like, I'm really likely to commit microaggressions as we talk about this. I'm really likely to make mistakes because white skin is advantaged in our society. So I have to own that. And I have other privileges as well, right? I'm able-bodied, right? So that that makes me more likely to commit microaggressions in that regard. So I really have to understand how much privilege we have. What I like to think about it is, I like to think about if you imagine society as, a, it's, people always say it's a level playing field. Everybody has an equal opportunity to get ahead. That's not the way it is, right? Society's tipped like this. Society's crazy tipped to be very diagonal, right? And the thing is, if you're playing soccer or imagine you're playing any sport, 
you can see how hard it is to kick the ball upfield, right? This is really hard to defend the goal down here if we're staying with, with that image. And so certain aspects of our demographics are privileged and certain aspects are oppressed, right? And so race is certainly one. Black, brown, indigenous, biracial people, Asian American, Pacific Islanders. Certainly we have a lot of oppression. So let's imagine a lot of people think that society is a level playing field. And so they say, oh, everybody can work, get ahead if they work hard. But that's not true. Society is really tipped. And and what it does is it favors some people and it disfavors other people. So some people are privileged and some people are oppressed. There's no, there's no even, there's no like neutrality. There's no like, oh, let's just be colorblind and keep things as they are because how they are is not fair. How it is, is like this. Hmm. And so it's not, it's race for certain black and brown, indigenous, Asian American, Pacific Islanders. I mean, we know that there's clear evidence that whether you're looking at legal oppression or racial, um, educational or health, there's so many disparities, right? In addition to race, which is significant, there's gender disparities. There's privilege given to people who are cisgender instead of transgender, right? There's privileges given to people who are straight instead of gay or bi. There's, there's able-bodied privileges. A, a huge privilege that we don't talk about very often is anti-fat bias and weight privilege, right? People who weigh an average uh, of what's considered to be average weight have far more privileges than people who are living in larger bodies. We don't even talk about that as a social justice issue. And the, the burden of having all multiple kinds of oppression every day is really challenging for folks, right? Because day in and day out, and of course, I, I'm not going to understand this as a white skinned person entirely, but day in and day out, managing and living in a world that has treats you as less than, that's, that's really taxing to a person, right? And so just as an example of that, if you look at college students and you ask college students of color, so BIPOC color, college students, racial ethnic minorities, um, how often do you experience microaggressions in a classroom, right? What those students say, 65% of them say regularly, I regularly experience microaggressions in my college classrooms. Let me make it even worse than that. The microaggressions are perpetrated equally in undergraduate and graduate classrooms. So it's not something like, oh, we get better at that. We grow out of it. And the microaggressions are perpetrated equally by students as faculty. We have work Mm. to do, right? Like we have work to do because the things we say, and I I put myself in that group. I, I, I come in a microaggression every single day, every day. And so we always have to be working. And that's where cultural humility comes in. That's where I like cultural humility. Not my idea. I stole it, right? It's somebody else's idea. So Turbalana Murray Garcia. But what cultural humility is, is a way for us to, to apologize, to listen to other people's lived experiences, to start to redress some of those imbalances of society, for us to not think that our own culture is superior, which is a human tendency to think, oh, our culture is the best, and to really lean into culture instead of leaning out. Because we've been taught our whole lives not to talk about cultural differences. Okay, now my brain is also trying to pull me in so many directions in response to this. So let me start with first thing, that when... um, you know, as you quoted uh, some of these studies, one thing that strikes me is a lot of work is done, particularly awareness or lack thereof awareness work is done in college students or older. And uh, I, I've heard you say this before, and I kind of have noticed this myself, that 
we have no conversations about these uh, things in uh, K to 12 education. Oh, don't get me started. Okay, so let me... Right? <laughs> so actually, right? So yes. when we talk about um, having racial humility, uh, where are these conversations need to begin? Uh, you know, there's a great research um, uh, that is done in the area of uh, uh, development of white identity. And as every person uh, of minority undergoes a, the development of minority identity, the white dominant culture does not have that process. There are no milestones to hit. And that to me is such a telling of a missed opportunity, cultural opportunity, right? Um, and I, as a person, uh, Indian person gr uh, grown up in India, being dominant brown culture, brown was not the issue. Uh, within that, there was a caste issue. So uh, not even caste, but religion issue that I grew up in a majority dominant Hindu religion, not because uh, I was not living in the m dominant Muslim neighborhoods or Christian neighborhoods. Uh, India does have uh, pretty large um, minority religions as well. But it was only after coming to U.S., which is dominant Christian culture, I was asked to explain Hinduism, which I was start, began to fumble because I didn't have, I don't, I don't know how to tell you what Hinduism means because I live it. So I feel the, I genuinely feel for uh, uh, my uh, white contemporaries uh, and their children or their parents that you never had to explain what white means. Yes. Now suddenly. Every brown person, and I get into so many spaces, Didi, where I am asked to explain what white people should do uh, in response to uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, and uh, all the agenda that <laughs> should talk well, about should uh, assimilation. <laughs> <laughs> so it yeah. is really a disadvantageous and unfair, and it's an incredible predicament where the dominant culture gets to say, I'm sorry, I don't know. What, what do you want me to do? And let's, so if I can riff on that for a while, for like <laughs> four hours. Okay. So if you look at research again, most, most white parents, okay, so roughly about 70% use a colorblind approach when they're raising their kids. Okay. We don't see color. We all bleed red. Everybody's the same inside. There's good people and bad people that are black and good people and bad people that are white. It's color doesn't matter. Color doesn't matter, honey. And then if, if a child asks mommy, why is that man so black? When they see a man in the grocery store, the, the parent says, oh, shh, we'll talk about it later. And then that conversation never happens, right? Never happens. So what's the child learn? I'm not supposed to talk about that. I'm not supposed to see color, even though Color shows up in skin and eye color and hair texture in a thousand ways. We're not supposed to acknowledge that, right? So most kids, white kids, are raised with a colorblind approach, right? Now, I'm not throwing parents under the bus. Parents thought they were doing a good thing by raising kids with a colorblind approach. So I understand where that's coming from. The other challenge is that due to redlining, due to historical segregation of neighborhoods, we are very segregated by race in the United States and very segregated also by social economic status, right? Absolutely. So you can live your whole life uh, and, and be in these enclaves of whiteness or Catholicness or middle classness or whatever it is and, and not see how differently people are treated that are who are different than you, right? And so that also tends to contribute to like this whole idea of otherizing, right? Like thinking like, other people are different than me. I don't, I can't connect with other people. And so we, we are, as you know, 
we tend to put people in categories. We tend to think categorically. And so we get these categories in our head of other equals bad. And that's really problematic because if we don't know any other people to challenge that, if we don't know any, whatever it is, Muslim people or Hindu people or Muslim, you know, Buddhist people or whatever, then we think, well, oh, oh, the only people I know are, are Christian people or middle-class people or, or whatever the thing is, and we don't get past that. So that those are really problematic ways that our society is structured to keep us in our little enclaves, right? Meanwhile, if people of color daily have to interact and, and adjust and accommodate to the system that's not designed for, for people to succeed, and that's really stressful on, on its own accord. And, you know, I, I always think about executive function lens here because if you there, there are three hallmark uh, um, signature features of executive function or rather proficiency is strong, uh, um, you know, inhibition skills, ability to say no m- more than saying yes to everything in the world or to the input. Second is working memory, the, your capacity to hold on to multiple pieces of information, particularly disorganized ones, to create some order and structure and impose some rules in it so you can either follow instructions, process information, compare and contrast complex ideas, and then also hold on to dissonance. I'm feeling a little bit stressed out that I've been scrutinized as a person, you know, who's not thinking broadly or whatever it is. And lastly is mental flexibility. And as you were mentioning this, uh, one particular thing, all the research in diversity talks about having somebody um, who doesn't conform or is out of the realm of uh, predictable or maturity uh, creates some sense of tension. And this tension requires reconciliation. And that reconciliation itself is mental flexibility. So to me, the most homogenous group in America is the white um, white group. It is the most isolated and is least exposure to diverse diversity. And the div- people who are minorities are a lot more experienced with other minorities, right? Yes, and they recognize even the subtle minor differences amongst their group, and yet see the cohesion. So I, I see the adaptive flexibility is more exercised and practiced and put to test in that way. Uh, do you see it that way? Yeah. Right. That way? Oh, I, I totally see that because if you're white, you can choose to be in white spaces most of the time, right? And and that doesn't really push you to grow. Yes, right? and so. <laughs> yes. Where where does the growing happen that you're describing in your brain, right? I, I think the other challenge is, and I'm I'm going to say some stereotypes that are really problematic, right? That people, but when you hear things over and over and over in our society, you come to put them together, even though it doesn't make sense, right? So so my analogy would be like, you you put a with B. Our brains always want to do A and B together. We don't want to. Our brains don't really want to think. They don't. They want all the so shortcuts. agree. They just so thinking just hurts. A thousand shortcuts. <laughs> Thinking hurts. And deep thinking hurts more. Deep thinking is the worst of all. Like we really (laughs) don't want to deep think. So when we hear things over and over, and here's the stereotype part, right? When we hear black man equals dangerous, or gay person equals flamboyant, or white person equals entitled, or Muslim equal terrorist, or Latinx person equals illegal. Like we hear these horrible things over and over that aren't true. But our brains start putting them together and start putting them together. And then what people often do is they say, I don't have those biases. I'm a nice person. I'm progressive. I'm this. I'm that. I don't have any biases. 
but we have them. And we're better off. Here's interesting. This is so interesting. People who say they're colorblind actually commit more microaggressions than people who admit they have biases. So just for us to start to say, I've got biases. Like, and I'll give you an example of one of mine. I grew up thinking gender is a binary. I grew up thinking there's men and women. And now to think about assigned male at birth, assigned female at birth, gender non-binary, transgender, uh, gender fluidity. I have to grow in that regard. They as a pronoun. I, I have to grow in that regard, right? So I'm fighting a bias of my 55 years of thinking as gender as a binary. So I I'm, I'm, I'm have to make myself grow in that area. You know, I think, and again, you are fully um, embodiment of that cultural humility to say, I tend to make mistakes. I have examples of, uh, of my own lack of discretion and your openness to get in this space with me, um, knowing I'm a person of color. And, and as I describe some of these experiences from my perspective, it, it, and so I'm also hearing one wonderful invitation uh, to our whole society is we need to kind of really uh, demonstrate this bravery of soul. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that means? And uh, before you get onto this topic, I also wanted to reflect one of the things about how every step of the way um, I have encountered experiences that have shaped and, and I'm glad that they did. Um, and I, I feel life well lived is life of challenge, you know, not life that comes easy. Very early on in my, my career, um, when I came from India and one of my specializations as a speech and language pathologist was in voice disorders, as you know, we call everything disorder and stuttering. And so when I came, um, uh, I, I, uh, my first job was in Boston I was um, given uh, my my our department head was about to retire, and she ran transgender groups, uh, particularly male to female transition. Uh, and one of the uh, primary um, uh, role of a speech language pathologist is to help with the voice change, because voice is such an important aspect of your identity. And here I am, um, barely two years in this country. Uh, had to face a room full of 15 transgender uh, women um, without any, nobody ever even asked me, have you ever met a transgender person before? I got no education about it. And I would guess that you listened and you listened to people's lived experiences and you learned and you learned that each person has their own story and you learned what each person needs, and you adapted what you were doing to make sense for those people. And I, I would guess that when you look back on that point in your life, you think, I learned and I grew so much in that. Yes, it was uncomfortable, but I learned and I grew so much. And if we can just lean into being uncomfortable sometimes, we have so many opportunities to grow. If we could just say, yes, this is uncomfortable, but don't leave. Stay here in this all black space if you're white. Stay here in this all gay space or stay here in this space, whatever. And don't just go away from it because there's so much we can learn in that's those spaces. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, I think, uh, one, I the way I interpret it from my little 25-year-old's perspective, this is what people do. You know? So I first accepted it thinking that I'm, I must 
not having uh, awareness of transgender uh, individuals must be my lack of cultural exposure to America. So one, that was that. Second, I come from India. We have Ardhanari Nateshwar, which is one, you know, we have so many beautiful ways uh, that God can be, um, uh, um, God ma- can, God's manifestation can be captured. And one of such cap- captured imagination of humans about how to think of God is half man, half woman. Uh, and and so I grew up in that culture thinking that that's normal thing to have half qualities um, um, of man and woman. And third, as you said, once I got into those spaces and had the opportunity, one of the wonderful things that we do in our field is do case history, a detailed deep dive into life story of a person to understand what the need, what is their need that they want, want to solve. And I cannot tell you, Didi, um, close to 90% of people I interacted with in that first five years of my career in this particular aspect, which was only 10% of my entire uh, patient population, was they had attempted suicide. And and that is a profound life-altering decision, uh, or rather a decision, I have to be a woman, otherwise my life doesn't uh, mean what it needs to mean, was a profound telling to me that this is something not a choice or this is not something done in a frivolous way. But I grew up, grew so much. And one of uh, uh, transgender women became a very close friend of mine. And my children, uh, we would go to their house and I've taken my babies, you know, so it just changed the way my my family, little family, but I remember even my secretary uh, would uh, kind of, you know, like make fun of uh, people. She had no exposure other than seeing somebody in the waiting room, room. you know? It's so easy to otherize people when we don't know them, but then when we get to know individual people, like that's the whole key of breaking down the stereotypes, right? So when you meet that, like, and first what people say is like, well, Mr. Michael, our neighbor's gay, but he's not like other gay people. He's really nice. And then, but the more Mr. Michaels or Mr. Manuels or whatever it is that you meet, the more Latinx people or indigenous people or whatever it is, the the more that your brain starts to open a little bit. And then you're like these things that you put categories of like all people who are this are this way. We have to challenge that. Now, I'm going to challenge a little bit here, challenge um, white listeners right now, because I think white listeners tend to be like sometimes, oh, I'm progressive. Oh, I'm liberal. And where the biases show up the most is like, oh, but you voted for Donald Trump. Oh, I have a million biases and stereotypes about you. I I have nothing to say to you anymore if you have a MAGA hat on. That's not helpful. (laughs) That is not helpful, right? So we always have to be challenging. All of us have stereotypes, right? And we always have to be pushing ourselves to to grow past those I think part of the problem too is that we always want to appear culturally competent. We always want to appear like, oh, I've got this managed. I know I can deal with any person in any situation. I can deal with oh, a person from India, a person from a Hindu person, a this, a Buddhist. I can, I can do this and this and this. And it's like, well, and so we tend to like give a superficial veneer of understanding instead of listening and instead of knowing that we have some space to grow. And that's not helpful either, right? Because we want to come across as competent. The thing I always think, like whenever you tell anybody there's a stage theory, you know, any kind of stage theory, 
everybody always wants to be at the last stage. They're like, oh, of course, I'm at the apex. It's really lonely. It's lonely up here at the top. But, you know, I went through all those other stages and I'm so amazing. That's really not helpful, right? That doesn't change society's power structure like this. That doesn't give us a way to interact that's listening and like being like a child and learning and growing from each other. We don't do those things well. We tend to want to be the expert in the room, and that's not helpful. So where did you get such a, you know, to me, based on all the reading I have done about you and uh, even watching those fabulous videos of yours, you sound to me at heart an, an incredibly curious person, uh, incredibly open person, uh, and uh, and I would say knowing very little about you, very courageous. You're, you're bold to face a bad news. If Based on if you ran into a, a faux pas, I can see you saying, yep, my bad. I'm ready to correct. So I'm just very curious. <laughs> very curious, where did you inhabit those habits? And uh, it goes to show, at least to my point, uh, uh, what we know, and you're a psychologist, we know this, that people change with effort. You know, they they have lots of temperamental gifts, but you, these are some of these skills and they improve with practice. So um, maybe you can share a little bit about your own personal journey. How did you become this way? First of all, I'm not perfect and I make mistakes every day. And so I appreciate the compliment. And I'm going to also say, yes, but we all need to stay humble, right? Because I, again, I mess up every day. I think there's two things that are helpful. Um, one, I grew up in a very racially heterogeneous area. I, I actually, this is, I grew up thinking that white people were the minority because our neighborhood was so black. Okay. And so I remember this personal story here, but. I remember when I was 12, I had a paper route and I came home from my paper route and the, I would always read the pay, the headlines and stuff when I brought home the newspaper. And I asked my mom, I said, mom, why are the white people upset with Dayton public schools? And I grew up in Dayton. And she said, Didi, the white people are not mad at the schools. The black people are upset with the schools. And I in my 12-year-old wisdom, I said, mom, it says right here that the minority people are mad. The minority are the less than people, mom. There are less white people in the United States than there are black people. And my mom was like, that's not true. You, you, you went to Nebraska, you visited your grandparents. Don't you remember that a lot of the United States is white? But as a kid, I thought black people were the majority, right? So part of it, I bet I got lucky in that regard from growing up in a not racially homogenous area, right? Yes. So when I learn about privilege as an adult, when people start talking about white privilege, I'm like, oh yeah, I can remember that from first grade because I knew I wasn't going to get hit or spanked or, or, or some of the horrible things that my black classmates had. I, 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 I can see white privilege from when I was tiny, like, you know, a, a young kid. Again, it doesn't mean that I know and understand fully my privilege. It just makes it easier, I think, that I had that upbringing that, it, again, your brain's wired from the very beginning to see those things. I think the other thing that helps is I, I fundamentally believe in whatever kind of spiritual, it doesn't matter to me what we label this thing, right? But I, I believe in the good in people. I really believe that people are trying to do right. No one's, and I've worked with abusive parents my whole life, right? nobody wakes up and says, let me ruin my child's life. No, no one is trying to be a racist. 
No one's trying to be an abusive parent. No one's trying to do these horrible things we do to one another, right? So if we can lean in to understand that people are trying to do things um, the best they can, I think that gives us some space. And I, and I guess I would add, you know, I, again, I, I, sometimes when we've had so much privilege for so long, there's this lovely term called anticipatory anxiety, where we don't want to give up all the privileges we've had in our society. And I would challenge people who've had a lot of privileges by being male, by being straight, by being white, by being middle class, by being educated, by being able-bodied, by being thin, whatever the privilege is, citizenship privilege, that that sometimes if you think of, well, why why would I want to fight for social justice? Why, why would I want to change? Mm. Look, society's uneven playing field benefits me, right? Why do I, why do I want to change that? And let me tell you where the, the rubber really hits the road on this, if I could. So we have four kids, right? And I've spent my whole life trying to make every opportunity for our four children. But what if the playing field was level and my kids didn't have white advantage? What if the playing field was level? What if... What if I had four Muslim children or four black children or four brown children or four LGBTQ children or four, I would, I would sleep differently, right? And so Absolutely. we have to think of it in terms of like, if, if I really am serious about changing society, I'm going to, I'm going to have to advantage my kids, the people who I love, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, whatever it is they're going to get a few less advantages if I really fight for an equal playing field, right? And I think that's a space we don't talk about enough, right? No, because no. we don't talk about what's, social justice sounds like such a good idea on paper. We're like, yeah, I'm for it. That's a great idea. But when it comes down to the question of, would you privilege your the people you love a little less? People are really less on board with that. And in response to that, I would say, but you would gain back a little bit of your humanity. You would gain back a little bit of your integrity, especially white people have been living so long in this jujitsu world of pretending everything's fine. And it's like, well, wouldn't you like to buy back a little bit of, not buy back, but get back a little integrity instead of all the privilege that you have? And that seems like a pretty, that seems like a pretty good trade-off. You know, I think again, uh, the, to your point, you know, calling the what? What is uh, that transcend, transcending uh, our current condition is to really kind of like seek that inner calling. You know, and as you're talking about this, uh, really uh, following the true north is that integrity to recognize privilege and really not living in the space of uh, fear of the impending doom. If I give away my privilege, uh, I just really like to kind of remind people that if you are on the 17th rung, you just stop climbing. The person who is not on the ladder is just doing one step. You know, they're getting on the ladder. That's it. But you're not giving up anything. Your advantage of 17 rung difference is not minimized, you know. And I think that even that uh, requires a great abstract thinking and, and also um, zero-sum game. You know, how do I kind of um, uh, think about the greater good. You know, I, I really enjoyed, uh, reading that, uh, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee, which talks about by we not really addressing our, 
um, inner beliefs and, and our preconceived notions, we are creating a, a society which will be uh, progressively and, and slowly um, cause, um, you know, experiences of harm for all. Uh, you know, collective demise. Including ourselves. Including Including ourselves. ourselves. Absolutely. Because there's tremendous cost to living in this way that says, I don't see race. I don't see heterosexism. I don't see these things. There's a tremendous cost to to ourselves to to pretend that things don't exist that do. That's an expensive way to live. That takes a lot of brain power to, to, to live that way, right? Absolutely. And so, yeah, you, you're, you're right. I think, um, more and more people, um, particularly more and more, uh, highly educated and, and, uh, it doesn't matter educated or not, but I think one, we need to live in more diverse communities. Two, we need to have more exposure to stories of all kinds. And three, we need to truly recognize that our not knowing is a costly affair, particularly the dominant group not knowing is costing a lot to those who are minorities. Um, so I I really appreciate your perspective and, and uh, you openly talking. There is something about uh, a white person talking about these issues through one's own uh, inner work, um, because that can provide not only a framework, but also an invitation that everybody else can try it. Um, so I appreciate you being in that space. <laughs> we should say, tr- we should say, try this at home, like try this at home. Yes. Like, try, try. And I, I think the thing too, if I could add, when it's uncomfortable is your chance to lean in, you know, lean, lean into it, right. Instead of yes. leaning out. Yes. And so, so often we're just taught, don't talk about culture. Don't talk about differences. But let's find a way to talk about culture and to talk about differences. You know, and we can do that in a way that's um, that bring that connects people. That doesn't have to be divisive. That doesn't have to be filled with guilt and shame. Because you know, you know, guilt and shame don't move people. If we feel like crap anytime a conversation comes up about able-bodied privilege or whatever, we're not going to participate in the next conversation. So we really don't want to lean into guilt and shame. We want got to call things what they are. But Absolutely. How do, move, how do we move forward in a way? How do we move forward as a society, right? And that's Absolutely. really what we want to do. We, we, we can do better than what we're doing. Well, brilliant. So as we come to an end, I can't, I mean, you know, you and I can talk for hours. I can see, uh, there's so many topics you can, you can speak on and, uh, maybe you will consider coming back here again. Um, but as we come to an end, uh, with this particular conversation, I always love to ask my guest, uh, what are you reading? What's, uh, been, uh, or what has influenced your thinking, uh, that you can, uh, recommend to our listeners? Maybe they can too. Uh, find some amazing insights uh, from those authors. So I love James Baldwin. I love Imram X. Kendi, Ajama uh, uh, Olu, um, any author who's a different ethnicity than you, Tori, uh, Tony Morrison, anyone who has a different perspective than you, I think helps us grow. The other thing I've really been into is um, indigenous people's history of the United States, all the, the black woman's history of the United States, queer history of the United States, like understanding that the way we were taught history, oh, Isabel, Isabel Wilkerson cast. I'm sure you've read that. Yes. Amazing. Yes. But just books that help us rethink how we've learned history. 
So I'm in the middle right now in the other room is uh, Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. Oh, it's yes. Just excellent because it's like, and I, I hate to say this, but time and time again, it's like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Why didn't I, why didn't I ever think about that? And just understanding the legacy and history of slavery, the taking of indigenous lands, the, the treating of immigrant people, we have to do a better job understanding how the history plays into the context of today. You know, it just reminded me of the, the founder of uh, the project, uh, 1679, uh, 1619, sorry. Um, she actually got inspired by that book. And so I, I too am reading that book. So fascinating. So you're basically talking about uh, um, uh, engaging our um, uh, new generation of uh, children as well as adults with the uh, accurate aspects of history that can just give us a new lens to look at um, the um, historical um, places where we come from and and so many ways we can go to better places. Um, and I, I, if I could add podcasts, magazines, any anything that's different from how you think is good for us, right? So, so think about the the material we consume, the TikTok, who we follow, who we do. Those people all look like you, <laughs> and what yeah. does it mean if they do? So, how can we think of who we follow and who we want to imitate and who we read? Well. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you once again, uh, Didi, for being my guest. And as uh, listeners, as you can see, these are very important conversations we are having with uh, highly knowledgeable, incredibly qualified and passionate experts such as Didi and their unique uh, perspective is really um, uh, kind of, you know, elevating our game. So, Definitely consider uh, recommending this podcast to uh, your friends, your family. Uh, definitely uh, leave us a review. That's the best way people find us. And as you know, we have been listened to in 110 countries. Uh, our YouTube channel has been one of the ways people are able to look us up as well. And lastly, um, uh, yeah, talk amongst yourselves about uh, these important topics uh, or maybe take a little inventory of your own cultural humility. Uh, more self-reflection you do, more uh, ways uh, you look into your own um, blind spots, um, you know, our, the world is going to become better because of our personal commitment to self-improvement. So with that, stay tuned. Well stay said. Tuned. Uh, thank you, Didi, and stay tuned and see you again. Uh, here's uh, thank you, Didi. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.